Uh, good morning. I'm, those of you who I've met, I'm John Moon, and I'm an elder here at Central Presbyterian. And at Central, we believe that we can be more meaningfully engaged in the world when we have a better appreciation for, a deeper understanding of the unique lecture series is our contribution to the ongoing dialogue at the intersection of faith and uh, the modern culture. And I'm pleased this morning we have as our speaker um, Professor Tyler Vanderweel, my friend, not just my friend, but friend to uh, Presbyterian Church. He's here um, to witness the baptism of David and Ariana's daughter, Victoria? That's right. Victoria this morning. So we thought we'd make it a twofer. Um, so Tyler's here. Um, let me introduce Tyler and then we can we can get on with it. Um, he is the John L. Lowe and Francis Lehman Lowe Professor of Epidemiology in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He is also director of the Human Flourishing Program and co-director of the Initiative on Health, Religion, and Spirituality at Harvard University. This year he's on leave as the George Eastman Visiting Professor at uh, the University of Oxford. And he holds degrees from the University of Oxford, University of Pennsylvania, and Harvard, uh, in mathematics, philosophy, theology, finance and applied economics, and biostatistics. His research includes methodology for distinguishing between association and causation. His empirical research spans epidemiology, the science of happiness and flourishing, uh, and the study of religion and health, including both religion and population health, and the role of religion and spirituality in end-of-life care. He is the recipient of the 2017 President's Award from the Committee of Presidents of Statistical Societies. For those of you who aren't in the know, that's kind of their Nobel Prize, the Statistical Community Nobel Prize. He has published over 300 papers in peer-reviewed journals and is author of the book, Explanation and Causal Inference, published by Oxford University Press. I'm sure all of you have read that one. Uh, you have trouble morning, falling asleep. <laughs> a Christian critique of Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now. Friends, please welcome Tyler Vanderbilt. Thank you, John, and thank you all for coming. It really is a pleasure being here. I was here a, a year ago as, as well, almost on exactly the same. I think so perhaps we're starting an annual tradition we'll see but wonderful to be uh, back here and and to be able to be with uh, David and Ariana as their daughter is, is baptized today and so with that I will will begin uh, my my Harvard colleague Steven Pinker recently published a new book Enlightenment Now that has become immensely popular it has been read and discussed by many it's made the New York Times bestseller and Bill Gates declared it my new favorite book of all time uh, the book has three parts. Part one is Steven Pinker's interpretation of the Enlightenment. Uh, part two is the, the central part of the book and the longest part of the book and essentially consists of chart after chart suggesting that uh, contrary to popular belief, almost every aspect of life, according to Pinker, has gotten better and better over time. Uh, and then part three of the book is Pinker's discussion of the importance of reason, science, and humanism, and the accompanying dismissal of uh, religion. The book's been met with much acclaim and also with much critique. Uh, the more conceptual material, uh, several have argued that Pinker does not actually understand the 
enlightenment or its philosophers and does not adequately do, deal with their actual views, effectively ignores history and the historical contributions of Christianity. Uh, Peter Harrison of University of Queensland summarizes contra pinger, many enlightened figures were not interested in undermining traditional religious ideas, but rather in providing them with a more secure foundation. That Pinker has managed to get this so spectacularly wrong is not altogether surprising given that he rarely deigns to cite any of the relevant writings. In fact, most of the important Enlightenment thinkers receive little or no mention at all in the book. Uh, one could go on and on with the uh, philosophical and historical critiques of parts one of the book, uh, but many of these critiques leave part two of the book, the central part, completely uh, uh, untouched. And it's that second part of the book that I want to discuss. Uh, and, and there is, I think, in fact, a lot to be heartened by in that second part of the book. Uh, over the century and centuries, life expectancy has gone up. Health has improved. We've become wealthier and safer. Progress has been made on human rights. Issues have declined. And knowledge and education have dramatically expanded. Uh, it's an impressive and an important one. We've made real progress in each of these areas. I ask, what is missing? Well, Pinker's Enlightenment now focuses almost exclusively on the aspect of well-being. It neglects pretty much the whole of the social, moral, purposeful, and spiritual dimensions of life. Flourishing in this life consists arguably not only in Money, as important as these things may be, uh, rather flourishing our we've been working with at the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard, and one which provides a very different lens to Pinker's. Pinker, in short, neglects what matters most to the majority of the world's population. And with these social, moral, purposeful, and spiritual through each of these. Uh, with regard to social well-being, strong evidence documented, for example, in Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, that community participation has dramatically declined in the past decades. Trust, likewise, has dramatically fallen. Marriage rate rapidly fallen despite marriage still being a desired goal for the vast majority of people. Loneliness data has been subject. At present, it's the best data we have. The question is itself, I think, rather shocking and, and betrays the fact that we really have had a near exclusive focus on material outcomes tracking, something I, I very much think should change. But in any case, the overall picture with regard to social well-being is not particularly encouraging. If we turn to trends in meaning and purpose, the data are yet more scant, but what we do have is suggestive and perhaps in cross-country comparisons, it's of note that levels of meaning and purpose uh, in contrast to happiness are higher in poorer developing countries than they are in rich within the United States comparing education levels suggests similar patterns. Economic development seems to be accompanied by the loss of meaning and purpose. 
might there have been losses in this regard as well, in addition to social well-being? If we turn to questions of character, an assessment of progress or, or lack thereof is, is also difficult. Measures of these things have only recently emerged, and, and much of what we do have is, is subject to self-report bias. Are you a person of good character? Um, so much of the evidence we have is indirect. But, but again, levels of trust uh, have, have fallen, uh, perhaps indicating some perception of uh, our sense of the character of those around us. Uh, similarly, assessments of whether other people live as honest and moral lives as they used to in the United States have decreased considerably over past decades. The general sense is that the moral fabric of our society has been declining. Political discord and polarization have increased, perhaps indicating less of a commitment to seeking the good of others, even those with whom we disagree. However, uh, as Professor Pinker's book points out, Happily, rates of violence seem to have fallen. Uh, rights are better insured. At least some of this, possibly much of it, may have to do with improved political governance, policing, better welfare programs. We may have more of a triumph of governance and ingenuity than of character and morality, uh, perhaps a constraining and redirecting rather than a transformation of, of selfish instincts. But, but still, this does seem like progress. However, even with just the statistics on violence, the picture is arguably somewhat more complicated. Violent deaths, deaths uh, in war, deaths by homicide, uh, all of these rates have been falling, and, and this certainly is good news. Uh, these statistics, however, ignore one of the more controversial losses of life, abortion. If one were to include abortion among violent deaths, then the past half century would have been one of the most violent in all of human history. Quite similarly, the economist Stephen Levitt in his book Freakonomics attributes a portion of the decline in crime in the United States to higher abortion rates in areas with higher criminal activity. He notes, however, that if one were to count an abortion even one one-hundredth of a crime, then abortion has led to considerably increased rather than decreased rates of criminal homicide. There will, of course, be controversy around this topic, especially among those who do not share the traditional Christian view of the value and beginning of human life. However, this issue does, at the very least, complicate what seemed to be progress, even on the topic of violent deaths. Modern liberal free market democracies have, it seems, led to economic gains, to technological progress, to advances in education and health, and, and these are all good. They've gone a long way in the maximization of individual freedoms as well. But have we perhaps maximized the wrong type of freedom? Do we perhaps have the freedom to do what one wants rather than a freedom to be one's best, a freedom to ensuring everyone pursues what they perceive as most important? To what extent are our freedoms being used well? What are we to make of the increased use of recreational drugs? How do we interpret these things? Is freedom to do whatever you want fully conducive to human flourishing? Pinker would suggest that maximizing individual freedom is important, but the picture is arguably more complicated. As Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has noted in his encyclical Space Salvi, since man always remains free and since his freedom is always fragile, the kingdom of good will never be definitively established in this world. 
Anyone who promises the better world that is guaranteed to last forever is making a false promise. He is overlooking human freedom. Freedom must constantly be won over for the cause of the good. And every generation has the task of engaging anew the arduous search for the right way to order human affairs. This task is never simply completed. These are questions of character. And in this regard, it is not clear that we have truly progressed. So in looking at these various trends as a whole, uh, there's certainly some progress and some decline. Uh, one wonders, however, given the whole, whether we might inadvertently be trading off progress in one form of well-being for another. Should there be concern that with our current priorities, we may be neglecting those forms of well-being that are most central to what it is to be human? Uh, perhaps yet more controversially, in the context of a relatively secular, pluralistic society, we might turn to questions of spiritual well-being. Has spiritual well-being increased or decreased? How would we know? Uh, religion is still common around the world. Christianity is still on the rise. However, within the United States, religious service attendance has been steadily declining for the past two decades. But how might we really evaluate spiritual well-being? My view is that it would be good and important to develop tradition-specific measures of spiritual or religious well-being, and likewise to track the progress of these also over time. Why do I think this is so? Well, for much of the world's population, this is what is most important. It seems foolish to neglect in our assessments of whether well-being is going up or down. Many of the world's religions, and certainly Christianity, take as the final end of the human person some notion of communion with God. All other goods and ends in human life are then considered subordinate to this. And if this is what people are pursuing, if this is what is shaping actions and decision-making, then when we assess well-being, should we not at least have some sense as to the progress that individuals and communities see themselves as making towards this end? Uh, I realize, of course, that such assessments would be no simple task. Uh, notions of spiritual well-being will, will certainly vary across religious traditions. Uh, to even attempt to measure these goals and ends of religious practice will, will of course, then require tradition-specific measures. Um, while certain generic measures of spiritual well-being have been put forward, uh, they're arguably not sufficiently specific to really be what is of most relevance to actual practicing religious communities. Again, I think tradition-specific measures are necessary. Uh, we've begun some preliminary work on the development of such measures specifically for the Christian tradition, focused on the measurement of practices, beliefs, community, service, character, and prayer as being important in spiritual well-being in this life and the means to the final end of communion with God. In fact, you may have participated in a survey conducted here at Central Presbyterian assessing spiritual well-being that was administered this past spring based on this work. Um, there, of course, must be acknowledged what can and cannot be measured, uh, but simply because certain facets of spiritual well-being, such as the presence and operation of God's grace, for example, cannot be measured, this does not mean that no progress can be made at all. I think we can go some way, however crudely, in assessing spiritual well-being itself. In a pluralistic society such as ours, for the practice of tracking spiritual well-being to be more widely embraced, I think it would also be necessary to develop other measures for other religious traditions if this is going to become common practice, say, in this country. 
But such developments might facilitate more fruitful exchange of ideas with those of other religions with regard to what is shared and with regard to what is different across traditions. It might create opportunities for dialogue, for evangelization, and for greater discussion of those things that matter most in life. The development of new measures of tradition-specific spiritual well-being may then facilitate an understanding and tracking of how various religious communities are faring and whether they perceive themselves as making progress towards attaining those ends they deem as of primary importance. The idea would not be so much the comparison of spiritual well-being across groups, again, with tradition-specific measures, that would effectively be impossible, um, nor would it be to kind of combine these spiritual well-being measures with, with more generic measures of general well-being, Rather, the hope of such measurement would be to acknowledge the importance of these ends of spiritual well-being, ends that Pinker, again, completely neglects, and to provide a way to assess progress towards these ends or lack thereof. Uh, I do anticipate this proposal being met with some skepticism, the attitude in parts of the Western world, and perhaps especially in Western academia, sometimes seems to be that religion's on the decline and that we can perhaps simply ignore these matters and they will eventually go away. Uh, I certainly don't think this is so. 84% of the world's population identify with the religious tradition. Uh, the vast majority consider religion an important part of life. Uh, some recent data and projections from the Pew Forum suggest that by the year 2050, um, rates of religious affiliation may be even higher than they are at present worldwide, given current trends. Uh, religion is important to most. It is the most important to life of life to many, it is not going away. Um, so my argument is simply that if we really want to understand progress and human flourishing, the things that matter most to people, then it is important to have some sense as to where things stand with regard to what countless people and communities consider as most important spiritual well-being. Moreover, in thinking about human well-being more generally, while notions of spiritual well-being will, will vary across uh, different religious traditions, I think there are still many common ends upon which we can attain agreement with regard to well-being, including, for example, happiness and life satisfaction, mental and physical health, meaning and purpose, character and virtue, and close social relationships. And there is now ample rigorous evidence um, from uh, my own empirical research and that of many others that religious communities in fact profoundly affect these other aspects of temporal flourishing as well. The empirical work that I and others have done indicate that participation in religious community, religious service attendance, being here this morning, uh, positively affects, is associated with greater longevity, less depression, less suicide, less smoking, less substance abuse, better cancer and cardiovascular disease survival, less divorce, greater social support, greater meaning and purpose in life, greater life satisfaction, more charitable giving, more volunteering, more helping of others, and greater civic engagement. Policies aimed at facilitating and protecting the free practice of religious communities and the pursuit of their own ends will thus also, on average, I believe, make substantial contributions to numerous aspects of health and well-being in this life also. So even if there is lack of consensus on spiritual well-being itself in a pluralistic society, the protecting of the presence and practices of religious communities will contribute to human flourishing as the now abundant evidence does indeed indicate. Uh, from a Christian standpoint and also from the standpoint of many of the world's religions, it is spiritual well-being that is most central to human flourishing. Pinker's account ignores this and is thus impoverished and inadequate because of it. 
Thus, while the data Pinker presents is important and encouraging, and I, I believe correct, what he leaves out is arguably even more important. As we've discussed, in the West at least, social connectedness and community have deteriorated. Levels of meaning and purpose have likely fallen. Changes in morality and character are ambiguous. And moreover, Pinker gives no account of and effectively dismisses the relevance of spiritual well-being. A true account of human progress needs to adequately reckon with these central aspects of life as well. However, to provide such an adequate account, we need to start measuring and tracking and studying these other aspects of human well-being, uh, just as we do with income or with life expectancy. And this is part of the work we are trying to do at the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard. Because what we measure shapes what we discuss, what we aim for, what we know, and what policy measures are put in place to achieve our ends. Without adequate measurement and tracking, policy measures will be reduced to the material, and we will be left with an impoverished and conceptually inadequate account of human progress, as we find in Pinker's book. Some of the losses that we have discussed Pinker concern what is most central to being human, and from a Christian perspective, to having been created in the image of God. How do we address these losses? I think there are a variety of means of promoting community and meaning and, and character, and I think many of these should be pursued. But from a Christian perspective, and now with some empirical data to support it as well, a return to the Christian faith itself will be the central remedy. It is the Christian faith, faith in Jesus Christ, and the life of the church that will build community and social connection, that will shape a sense of meaning and purpose that will transform character, and that will give rise to true spiritual well-being, a communion with God and Jesus Christ. From a material perspective, things may look pretty good, as per Pinker's account. From a Christian's perspective, we need transformation. We need repentance and a return to the Christian faith. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need the church. It is these things that will bring a fuller flourishing, a true human flourishing. Thank you. Thank you.